0: led you last week. I said you were going to get a two-week break from the Hawaiian shirts, but the reality is there it is, larger than life, right back. Oh, and and Dan Arms. So, uh, wow, trouble, trouble all around. Well, I brought some things with me this morning. I thought uh, maybe you'd like to see them. So I got this bin with the nice black sides and the yellow lid. And uh and I got some things in it. And I want I want to show you the things that I have here in the bin. So I got a kneeling pad. Nice. Little tiny step stool. Tame teal. What a color. Okay. Little tiny step stool. Um couple of screwdrivers, one flathead and one Phillips. A roll of tape. Drop cloth. going to have to vacuum after this is over. Drop cloth out of here. Okay. Drop cloth. Um. Handy paint pail. sander, there. 3 inch nap roller for smooth to semi-smooth surfaces. Roller frame. Roller frame extension handle. I got this from a 97-year-old man. That's true. I really did. Um, Roller tray and liner. Spackle. Can never have too much spackle. Two-inch angle sash brush. stir sticks, putty knife, hammer, and large screwdriver so that you can open your Sherwin Williams super paint. What am I ready to do? I heard it somewhere. What am I ready to do? No, Bill, you are the one who's always ready to go fishing. I'm ready to paint, right? And so I've got everything that I need for interior painting, okay? I am all set for interior painting. Well, today, I want to continue talking about the Gospel People series that we're in, got these things, Um, and... We're going to talk this week about a collection of tools that God has provided for us in living the Christian life. But first, I want to go back and review where we were last week. Last week, I told you the story of salvation history how God has been working throughout all of history to redeem his people and to glorify himself through the lives of those redeemed people. He's redeeming broken, rebellious sinners like you and me. We saw last week how God's creation was good, how we as humans rebelled against the goodness that God had given us, and how we damaged it through our sinful choices, and how God used the nation of Israel to bring forth his Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. The good news of Jesus Christ is the gospel. Jesus died on a cross, so you won't have to die forever. Jesus rose from the dead, so that one day you can rise from the dead. And I said that if you believe the gospel— you become part of God's forever family. Now, when you receive Christ by faith, a whole bunch of good things immediately become true of you. For example, every promise that God has given to the church now applies to you. That includes everything from forgiveness of sins to the righteousness that he imputes to us. Now, for sure, the most important thing that God can do is to change your spiritual status before him. The scripture says he has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's the number one thing that can happen for you. But the gospel doesn't just change your eternal destiny or your status in God's eyes. It also changes your character and your behavior. It changes you on the inside. So I'd like to spend today's message talking about an idea that Peter brings up in his second epistle. The beginning of 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 3. Peter writes, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Okay, so we're just gonna have a single theme verse this morning. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Now, if you're at all like me, you're probably wondering how this power for godly living comes to you. And I'd like to suggest that God provides His divine power and the knowledge of Himself to us in a variety of ways and that when we make use of these means or spiritual tools, we are fully equipped for godliness in the same way that right now I'm fully equipped to paint a room. Okay, Now, I acknowledge that tool is a pretty poor word to use when trying to describe the resources, the spiritual realities that God's given us that are beyond our comprehension. But I also recall Jesus using very simple physical language to express spiritual truth, so I don't feel too troubled about it. But let's talk about these tools or these resources that we have for living the Christian life. Number one, Our first resource is the Holy Spirit of God. And again, resource is a poor word to describe the third person of the Trinity, but our first resource is the Holy Spirit of God. In John's Gospel, Jesus spends chapters 13 through 17 preparing the disciples for his arrest, crucifixion, burial, and ultimate resurrection. In other words, he's getting them ready to represent him in this world after he's ascended back into heaven. As a key part of that preparation, he helps them get to know the Holy Spirit. He mentions the Holy Spirit in John 14:16 where he has been emphasizing his closeness to the Father. He and the Father are one. In verse 16, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. The Greek for advocate here, parakletos, can also be translated as helper, counselor, or comforter. Jesus here calls him the Spirit of truth and promises that he will be with us forever. A little later in the same chapter, Jesus states, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, I do not give to you as the world gives, do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid, 14, 26, and 27, notice that the Holy Spirit will be our teacher of spiritual truth, and the one who continually brings Jesus' teachings back to mind. This shouldn't be any surprise, because in Acts 16, 7, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Jesus, and in many other New Testament scriptures, he's referred to as the Spirit of Christ. And these phrasings or titles emphasize the closeness between the members of the Trinity. I think sometimes we picture the Holy Spirit as being quite different from the Father and the Son, but that is just not the case They, the persons of the Godhead, are united in purpose in the same way that fingers on a hand work together. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never had any trouble getting my fingers to do the same thing at the same time, right? If I want to come over here and pick up this little step stool, all of my fingers cooperated perfectly to do what I want to do. Or if I want to go hang on a branch or something, all ten fingers know what they're supposed to do in order for me to stay on the branch. And it's the same way among the members of the Trinity. They're not in conflict with each other. They are in complete unity. But perhaps the most amazing part of the Spirit's ministry is that He indwells us. This is clearly taught in the Gospels, in Acts, and in the Epistles. In Romans 8, 9, for example, Paul writes, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, and that's the Greek word sarx behind that, which literally translates flesh. So the NIV makes a translator's decision there to call it sinful nature. But the sense of the sarks is the part of you that is unspiritual or uh, unregenerate, not, not in unity with God. We're, you're not controlled by the, the sarks, by the flesh, um, but by the spirit If the spirit of God lives in you and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. It should amaze us that the God of all creation has chosen to take up residence in sinful, foolish people like you and me, but he has, and he empowers us for life and ministry So the first tool is the Holy Spirit. God gives us His Holy Spirit. Tool number two. Our second tool is the Word of God. These 66 books that you hold in your hands or that you have on your device are not just some ordinary ancient text. There are plenty of texts like that in the world. There's the Iliad there's the Odyssey, there's Josephus's history of the Jews, right? You could read all kinds of ancient texts. No, but these books claim to be inspired by God himself, and they give ample evidence for that being the case. For example, Scripture contains prophecy upon prophecy, and not one of those prophecies has ever failed. They have either already come true, such as the birth of Christ— And I want to talk here, just take a little side trip on the birth of Christ. So if you went through the Old Testament and touched on the major prophecies of the birth of Jesus Christ, where he was born, what his parentage would be, um, what would happen to him in his life, and how he would die, okay? So if we took the eight most important prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament and we did some work on that from a statistics perspective... Um, here's what mathematics and astronomy professor Peter W. Stoner said. He stated that the chance of just eight prophecies, like Jesus' prophecies, coming true by sheer chance is one in ten to the 17th power. Okay, Now that is a one with 17 zeros behind it. And I don't know how to say that number, but maybe Dave Atwood does. That would, can, no, maybe by second service? Okay, by second service, good. Is a one with 17 zeros behind it. It's an astro- astronomically large number, okay, that, and it's one chance out of that. If you don't like astronomically large numbers, what you'd want to do is picture the entire state of Texas covered with half dollars, two feet deep, okay, so that's this deep, Okay, Then you're going to mark one of them, and then you're going to blindfold somebody because that wouldn't be very difficult. They could just take their mask and move it up, and then you're going to walk them into Texas, and they're going to find the coin that you marked on the first try. That's the probability of all of the eight most important prophecies of Jesus happening in one person's life, okay? So he's got a supernatural life basically impossible. So the prophecies either have come true or they are still waiting to be fulfilled, such as prophecies of the end times or such as prophecies of Jesus's return. We're still waiting for those to be fulfilled, but they haven't failed. Um, Furthermore, the scriptures are of divine usefulness. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Paul writes, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, the Scriptures cause growth and change in the lives of people who read them with faith. And I want to say that's important because it's possible to read the Scriptures without faith. And in fact, I had a number of college professors that did that, and the Scriptures did them no good because their approach to Scripture was to take it apart, not in a way that honors it, but to take it apart in a way of attempted shredding, and they weren't benefited by it at all. So, um, when I hear Jesus say... In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It gives me the ability to look at trouble without being overwhelmed by it. I don't know if you realize it, but our society is going nuts, right? there there are aspects of our society that are unraveling right before our eyes and the terrifying thing is that the people who are doing the unraveling 20 years from now will probably come back and look at the unraveling they did and judge the unraveling and go yet another direction because they have no consistent foundation upon which to build their lives. And again, that makes me grateful for the Scripture, right? When I build on the certain foundation of the Word of God, I might, if I didn't build on the certain foundation of the Word of God, I might be knocked over by the waves of foolishness and evil that are going on in our society, But I have the Word, and I'm reminded that God reigns over all earthly powers and authorities, and I'm reminded that here we have no lasting city. We're not living for this world. We're living for the world that comes after this world. I'd ask you to consider how you use the Word of God in your life. I believe that many of you spend regular discipline time in the scriptures. But maybe you don't. Maybe the idea of Bible study fills you with guilt or regret or confusion. If so, you're not alone. I have suffered seasons in my life where Bible study wasn't really something I wanted to do. But I want to encourage you that the Lord has carried me through those times and I continue to open my Bible, and I continue to expect that he will teach me and encourage me through his open word. Tool number three. Tool number three is the fellowship of God's people. Now, this has been a strange year for fellowship, for heart-to-heart connecting with God's people. And I think you heard that in the testimonies of the men who were here siding the building yesterday, right? Is that they experienced fellowship with one another while they were working on this building. I think it's significant that when Jesus began his public ministry, he selected 12 disciples, not merely one or two. He gave 12 guys of different personalities and different backgrounds the chance to learn from him by doing life and doing ministry right alongside of him. And as Paul was planting churches, he used the metaphor of a body to describe it. Christ is the head of the church, right? The head makes decisions, and then the head is connected to the body, and the body is made up of all different pieces so that each of us have different functions, each of us have different connection in the body. And similarly, the author of Hebrews gave us the oft-quoted command, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, Hebrews 10.25, and I got to thinking about the picture of the body (laughs) and then imagining like when the alarm went off in the morning, what if your body parts could choose whether they wanted to show up or not? Like right foot decides that he's not coming today. Can you imagine? I'm going to run the whole day without right foot? I mean, that's no fun. And so the members of the body are critical to the functioning of the body. The goal of us meeting together is to consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, according to the previous verse. In other words, fellowship is a strengthener for the Christian life. As we fellowship together, we get strengthened with one another. For myself, I've been grateful to be part of the Constitution Rewrite Committee for the Berean Fellowship of Churches. Now, doesn't that sound like the absolute most boring thing in the world? The Constitution and Bylaws Rewrite Committee. There's five of us guys on this committee, and we've met on Zoom for the past year about every two weeks. And i got to tell you that over the course of those meetings, we have grown to be very good friends with one another. And we look forward to the next Zoom meeting and we get off the Zoom meetings and our wives can testify to this, that we say stuff like, wow, I just love those guys. I can't wait for the next time that we get together because we're fellowshipping around the Word of God as we're working through all this this committee stuff. That we're doing, and those guys have been just a wonderful role model for me, of how to how to relate to the Lord. So, um, as we continue through this strange year of 2020, I think the body of Christ needs to look for creative ways to stick together creative ways to be in fellowship with one another, to encourage one another that Jesus really is who He said He is and that we are most alive when we're living in Him. Tool number four. Tool number four is the ordinances of the church. The ordinances of the church are what some of us might have grown up calling sacraments. Here in the Berean Fellowship, we practice believer's baptism, okay? understanding from the New Testament that first a person comes to faith in Christ, and then they give evidence to that faith in Christ by following Jesus in baptism. They choose to be baptized, and that this pattern is perhaps more biblical than the other way around. This mirrors the pattern that we see in Acts chapter 2, where Peter tells those who have just become convinced of their sin and uh, convinced that Jesus Christ is the living Lord. Remember, this, this is right after the crucifixion. And Peter says to them, you crucified Christ. And they're cut to the heart. And they say, brothers, what shall we do? And he responds to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, Acts 2.38. It's the same pattern in Acts 8, where the Ethiopian eunuch comes to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures, and the very next thing he says is, Can I be water baptized? Here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And Philip baptizes him. It's the same pattern as the jailer at Philippi in Acts 16, when he and his household receive Christ, and then they are baptized. Now, typically today, baptisms are done in public um, and I think part of the reason for that is the benefit of the person being baptized, that they're able to give their testimony to others. But the other part is because we, the body, are observing the baptism and we're being strengthened as we see that person give evidence of the work that Jesus has done in their lives. And so baptism's a strengthener for us too. And then there's the Lord's Supper, Communion. Why do you imagine that Jesus instituted a regular activity for his church that involves eating and drinking? Well, we humans are spiritual beings, but we're also physical beings. And physical things like the bread and the wine allow us to experience a spiritual reality. See, we are good forgetters. As humans in our fallenness, forgetting is one of the things that we do best. And not only that, but the things that we forget tend to be the most important things. See, as humans, we have a tendency to put the shiny things in the most places of most importance or the urgent things into the places of the most importance. And so these ordinances of the church restore the true first things to their place of primacy. The last tool that I want to mention is prayer. In prayer, we are actually invited to communicate With the living God of the whole universe. Where would we be without prayer? Joseph M. Scriven, in an effort to comfort his mother who was living in a different continent than he was, wrote this poem in 1855. What a friend we have in Jesus! All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. This poem was eventually set to music and published in hymnals by the 1880s. But in contrast to Scriven's take on prayer, it seems that many of us studiously avoid it. Whether this is because we just don't see its effectiveness, or are too lazy to engage, or we just think we can handle things on our own, or the pattern of life that we've established just doesn't really have much of a place for prayer, we are missing out when we don't go to the King of Grace. The writer of Hebrews, as I mentioned last week, Urged us to come before our great high priest, knowing that he was tempted in the same ways that we are, yet, because of his dependence on his heavenly Father, he was without sin. He always overcame those temptations. The writer concludes Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need that's hebrews 4:16 there are a lot of things we can do in prayer we can praise god for who he is and celebrate his attributes as we talk with him we can declare to him that he is the only being worthy of our worship we can meditate on his many perfections we can thank him for his goodness and faithfulness to us through all circumstances. We can give thanks for the specific blessings or specific answers to prayer that He's given us in the past. And Psalm 103 instructs us to praise the Lord and forget not all His benefits. Those are things we can definitely remember in prayer. And we can confess sin. We need to acknowledge regularly before the Lord that we do not live in sinless perfection. We've done things that we know are inconsistent with His character, and we fail to do the good we ought to do, even though He has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Of course, we can also ask for things in prayer, everything from healing to material needs to encouragement or just the ability to persevere through trials further, we are not limited to praying just for ourselves, but we can lift up one another in prayer. We can intercede for those who have not yet come to faith in Christ, that they might come to know Him and be rescued. James reminds us that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Well, there's certainly more tools in the Scriptures that equip us to live godly lives here on this side of eternity, but these five... The Holy Spirit of God, the Word of God, the fellowship of the saints, the ordinances of Jesus' church, and the gift of prayer are extremely important in the life of the believer. And as we come to the close of this message, I want to say something about tools, right? If this was the first time that you ever picked up a paint roller, put it together, Put the paint on it, and began applying it to the wall, you probably wouldn't have the most gorgeous result, right? Every tool requires practice. And so the same is true with the spiritual tools, that as we use these tools, as we fellowship with one another as we study the Word, as we spend time in prayer, and all while relying upon the Holy Spirit to do that work in us, they become more comfortable to us. And pretty soon in your spiritual life, you'll find yourself making nice smooth walls with only minor imperfections and you'll learn to cut in quite beautifully. So, those things in mind, I'd like to encourage you to use those tools And we'll be able to testify with the Apostle Peter that God's divine power really has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Would you pray with me? Father, we are here this morning because we believe in your goodness. We believe that you truly have given us what we need, and especially in the ultimate sense So thank you. Thank you for this time that we met together. Thank you for encouraging us by allowing us to see other brothers and sisters in Christ around us. Thank you for giving us these tools. Spirit of God, thank you for being willing to indwell us, uh, to lead us into all truth and to remind us of what Jesus has said. Thank you that you work consistent with your word, and that you've given us these other resources as well, resources that strengthen us and keep us firm in the faith. And so, Lord, as we as we begin to close this service, um, give us eyes to see you this week, ears to hear you, and hands that we might reach out in your love. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.